Hello and welcome back to the show. First of all, I want to thank you for being here. I really appreciate everyone who listens to me, who follows me on social media, who's on my email list. I am loving the community that I'm I feel like I'm starting to create in this space and it's really exciting just to connect with other like-minded, passionate individuals. And I'm feeling like the more that I share about my love for self-development and business as well as women's health, the more people that are coming into this community that are also like that, that are have great, great business skills or they're diving into doing their own thing and really passionate and have all this really cool skill set to share, but they're also diving into the self-development stage and want to be better as a human in general. Um, and then also obviously dive into women's health and learn everything there is about to learn rather than just um, being that sort of, I guess, uh, what's the saying where you're like professional at everything or something? I can't remember what it is, but it's like that. There's that saying where you're like a something of all trades, jack of all trades. That's the one, jack of all trades. And then there's something else after that that I can't remember. Anyway. I'm loving that I'm connecting with you because sometimes when you're on this journey of like, I want to say, uh, building something that's super special to you, that's maybe a little bit unconventional or is a little bit difficult to do and you're not surrounded by other people like that, you kind of feel a bit like a nut job. And it's like you're the only person that's like really going all in on something or you're dedicating a lot of energy to a particular part of your life and no one else is really doing it. And you kind of think like, oh, this is so hard. I wish I had support of other people or I is is even normal. Like do other people do this? So I think there's a cool, that's the glory of social media and having this uh, platform to share with you. What I love to share about. So thank you for being here. Um, I'd also like to ask a favor. I'm always going to ask this because my goal for the education space is to reach more practitioners, practitioners, build this community up and be able to build more resources and share knowledge from other practitioners on the show, hint, hint, things to come. So I need to spread the word. And to do that, the best way is word of mouth. And we all know word of mouth gets us great referrals, gets good clients. It's really great for our skill set, for our business, for our reputation, whatever it is that you're doing. So if you get value out of this show, please share this. Share it with your friends or your family or other practitioners. I'm I'm assuming most of them are going to be some sort of work colleague because it's very specific to EP and women's health. Um, But you never know. Someone that you know might really find value in this. So yeah, I really ask that you share that. I mean, I'd love a review whatever it is um, that you think would be super helpful for me, I would love that. Or reach out to me on Instagram. Let me know what you think and how the show is helping you. I always love to hear that too. So yeah, before we get started, I just wanted to say that. Now, today, where are we at? What's today? Today is a research email. So every month on the first of the month, I share a research spotlight email that goes out to the email list. If you would like to be on that to receive this in your email, which is like all written up references to um, the study paper and links to anything that you need, I would love for you to be there. So I've got a link in the show notes that you can join the email list if you like, and you will have these uh, monthly research spotlight emails sent directly to your inbox. So Um, jump on that if you like it. Now that was uh, February's spotlight email. So on the first of the month, you would have received this. And if you missed the email, 
here is the audio version or the podcast version. We're going to talk about it a little bit more. It's a little bit more cash, not written, you know, like I can just talk and it doesn't have to look proper or have spelling, spell check. Um, and if you get my emails and you notice any of that, I'm so sorry because as much as I like to say my attention to detail is great, it's probably not because I'm notorious for spelling errors and grammar errors and typos and whatever. So that's me. Never probably going to get any better at it, but that's okay. So today, what have we got? The research paper is titled Hip and Pelvic Floor Muscle Strength in Women with and Without Urgency and Frequency for Dominant Lower Urinary Tract Symptoms. All right. So number one, I'm talking about the hip again. I know I've rambled on about the hip so many times, but the glory of the paper today is that we're talking about symptoms of urgency and frequency. So I really feel like all the papers that I've previously shared or things that I read a lot about are in regard to symptoms of urinary incontinence. And they're rarely reporting on the associations with any of the findings to do with urinary urgency and frequency, which is still such a problem for a lot of women. So I see in the clinic incontinence and prolapse, but then I also see a lot of women who are dealing with urgency and frequency type symptoms, and they're not really having the associated leakage issue with that. So this is something that I think is really quite helpful because if you come across the people that are urges frequency but not leaking, you can apply today's research. So I think when we think about these particular problems as well, a lot of the traditional management is typically through like medical intervention. So either pharma- pharmaceutical uh, strategies where there's medication involved or there's something like nerve stimulation or Botox injections, surgeries in some cases. And then they're doing things like fluid tracking and voiding diaries. And these are going to be particularly important, I guess, for, I mean, when I think of really severe cases of this, I'm thinking of like overactive bladder and things like that. So, um, which obviously is a, a very I want to say crap condition for some people because it is hard to manage. Um, However, these medical treatments are often only really giving partial results where we look at how the women have responded to them and the things that they're still dealing with. So the goal behind this research paper was to determine whether or not a musculoskeletal assessment could actually help identify any other driving factors that we could potentially address with a corrective program. So I feel like Like I said, many of the research papers suggest that hip muscle performance has a huge role in pelvic floor disorders, not so much urinary urgency and frequency, but pelvic floor leakage or urinary leakage, pelvic floor function. Now, the reason that they do this is because the hip or the obturator internus obviously attaches out to the hip, but also attaches into the pelvic floor through a lot of fascial connections. And they say that sufficient tension in this muscle group or muscle uh, will actually support force generation in the pelvic floor muscle. So research has previously found, obviously, that there is weakness in both the hip external rotators and abductors among a lot of women who have stress urinary incontinence versus like when we look at asymptomatic women, but there's no one that's ever really looked at it from the urgency and frequency perspective. So that was why they started, they did this study. So let's have a look at what they actually did. 
Now, the study details, there were 42 women that were recruited for the study. There was 21 symptomatic women and 21 controls. The symptomatic women were actually matched one-to-one to to the controls based on age, BMI, and parity, um, or vaginal parity particularly. Um, They did hip muscle strength assessments, and this was obviously measured with like a handheld dynamometer, and they measured hip external rotation force in like a seated position. So they were at 90 degrees flexion and they had neutral hip rotation. So it was really based on um, external rotation forces. And they also measured hip abduction strength in a side-lying position. They had pillows supporting the top leg, the test leg, so that they were positioned in a a way that was a neutral, ab, neutral to abduction, rotation and flexion and extension. So they could get accurate readings now. They also measured pelvic floor muscle strength and endurance. And this was obviously uh, measured via things like peak pressure and duration of contraction and then average pressure over the trial. So they did basically they're measuring hip strength in external rotation force, abduction force or strength, and also pelvic floor assessment. So they looked at comparing the matched symptomatic and asymptomatic women and measured the outcomes. So something to note with this research paper, though, is that they actually only looked at the assessment and whether or not um, there was discrepancies in strength. They didn't do any intervention for hip strengthening programs, so they don't really know whether or not the strength training component of this based on the outcomes, obviously I'm going to dive into that in a second, but they don't really know obviously if the actual training program would resolve this, but the idea was to like, can we look at anything else or what else could be driving these problems when women aren't getting, you know, full results from medical interventions. So let's talk about what they found. It's a super simple study. Two things came out, two observations came out of this study. One was that symptomatic women had significantly less hip external rotation strength and hip abduction strength compared to controls. So women with urgency and frequency had less hip external strength, external rotation strength, and hip abduction strength when comparing to their control. The second observation was that there was no statistical difference in pelvic floor muscle strength or endurance when they were comparing the two groups, women. So those were the two observations. That's pretty much what they were measuring anyway. So there's nothing really else to look at. So I think there are a couple of different things that we can take away from this paper. The first thing was that women with urinary urgency and frequency don't actually seem to have pelvic floor weakness, which is interesting. Um, the study did, however, dive into uh, suggestions around other parameters to measure with pelvic floor function. So that maybe the ability for the pelvic floor to move through full range of motion. I know um, clinically and the research tells us also that women with symptoms of urgency and frequency may in fact have a hard time relaxing through their pelvic floor. I often think about how many times that they're like holding on and squeezing because of the fear that's around the urges that they're getting and maybe a lack of ability to control that, or maybe they will leak or they they don't have access to the bathroom. So maybe it is from from that and they have a more uh, over-recruited pelvic floor muscle or there's more tension-based problems. Um, The study also suggested though that pelvic floor response to daily like the the response of the demand for daily activities and exercise versus voluntary contractions may also be a better parameter to assess, which I think is so important because all the time I hear, and I mean, this is actually mostly in incontinent women, so probably not relevant, but I'm going to tell you anyway, um, assessment of 
isolated pelvic floor voluntary contractions as, as being assessed versus how the pelvic floor is showing up in their daily activities. It's very hard to assess that in a sense of internal examination. But when I've talked to these women, they're all experiencing a lot of their symptoms in activities or high-end training and they have complete full control and strength levels at supine or even in just normal standing without external load. So those they are suggesting that obviously other parameters of pelvic floor function might be more important rather than just looking at the strength and endurance. So that was one thing to note that pelvic floor, you might not need to look at it straight away. Or maybe it's actually too tight. Common. The other thing that I think we can take away from this is that assessing hip strength in particular, external rotation and obviously abduction, may be more important to look at in women who present to you with urgency and frequency symptoms versus going straight into pelvic floor strength. So if we consider the impact that weakness in those tissues has across the pelvis, so we look at hip strength and the weakness there, um, we could then obviously see overactive um, and tight adductors or internal rotators in response to you know weakness in the opposite muscle group. Um, this would obviously then impact how the pelvis finds stability or maybe the motor control patterns that are turning up in functional activities. Um, so things like programming exercises that maybe bring a little bit more muscular balance to the muscle groups around the pelvis and then obviously teaching better motor control patterns might actually also be beneficial for this population based on weakness of the muscle groups around the pelvis. The other thing that we could take away from this is that musculoskeletal assessment is important to incorporate in your initial consultation with women who experience urinary urgency and frequency. We are practitioners here who are movement-based, so I'm assuming that most of you are doing this. However, I think that when someone comes in and they start talking about urinary problems, we automatically go to pelvic floor function and problems there, and we start to kind of address that particular problem or maybe isolated pelvic floor work um, when in fact as a movement-based practitioner we also need to remember the role of the rest of the body and how it plays or feeds into pelvic health so if we are assessing more than just the pelvic floor then we can provide programming that targets these areas and provide faster relief of symptoms for our clients it's sometimes quite hard to get symptom changes for these like urinary symptom clients, symptomatic urinary, whatever you want to call it, symptoms of urinary issues, let's say, um, for these clients. Like I, I find that when we're moving them through phases of programming, like they're learning about connection, they're learning about proper breath mechanics and how to connect properly to the pelvic floor. Maybe that makes a difference in their symptoms straight away. Maybe it doesn't, but I often find that it takes a little bit of progressive programming to get them really seeing changes in their system. And if you could do that faster and get them results within the first week, that's exciting. Number one, <laughs> it's helpful because that's what they're seeing you for, but it also creates that little bit of buy-in for them. So they trust you and they're going to listen to your advice a little bit more. So I do think that maybe sometimes we need to think a little bit more about like what will get them feeling better right now, even if it's not the first step of what we should be looking at. And in this case, pelvic floor function doesn't look like it's hugely problematic. I think it's still obviously important to address because there's probably some level of discoordination or something going on with them. But I also think that 
hip muscles are feeding into this very much so. So yeah, add in musculoskeletal assessment outside of the pelvic floor and the core to your initial assessment. I think the other thing that's really nice to see is that exercise programming may in fact be better than medical management for this population. I mean, this is just my thoughts. I'm being biased here because I love exercise and I'm a little bit like, do you really need medication for something if you haven't tried the exercise-based route yet? So if you don't like that opinion, fast forward. Um, But I think like I've seen, I've just seen heaps of clinical uh, populations. Like in my clinic, I've seen a lot of women that come in, they've had overactive bladder diagnosis or they've got extreme urgency and frequency and they're not really quite sure why. And they've been given other alternate therapies Um, A lot of them, because I see a lot in regional areas, they haven't even really had access to pelvic floor physios. So they're going about this a lot from the GP perspective and being given like, um, you know, medication to change the bladder, like bladder uh, signaling, or maybe it's, um, you know, they've been like here, just track through diary tracking and fluid intake and things like that. Um, I've had a lot of them report that they never even knew that they, that pelvic floor training or core training or movement-based training could do anything for them. And they've been searching for years. So a lot of these women have had symptoms for a long time as well and haven't had any movement-based approach. So they've not had enough relief from all of all of that, obviously, because they're still looking for answers and that's how they've sort of come across me in some way, um, or other practitioners, if they've gone down, you know, the movement based route with anyone, yeah, I'm not talking just about my clients, but I guess that's what I have experience in. So that's why I'm sharing them. Um, but yeah, I think once we've started to actually teach them a lot of things about like muscle tension and signs and symptoms to look out for and management strategies and hip mobility and, uh, breath mechanics and how its relationship with the nervous system and stress and anxiety can feed into all of this. It's actually made such a difference with them in terms of managing their symptoms, but then also feeling in control when things do come about. So I think that's really important is most people freak out because they don't have control, but if they knew they had strategies to implement when things actually did come about, They wouldn't be so worried about either going out in public or staying out in particular areas or not having access to a bathroom. So I think when we look at it from that perspective, it's really exciting to note that this is such a, I can play such a big role in their symptom management and really improve their quality of life. So um, win for exercise. Once again, I'm sure everyone here is like, yes, exercise therapy, do it. (laughs) It's so much better than medical interventions, but Anyway, my opinion, my biased opinion, but I'm sharing it with you anyway. The other thing, the last point that I think is so cool, which is going to be relevant for anyone here who doesn't really know how to do much pelvic floor therapy, rehab, whatever you want to call it, is that if you come across a client who starts to tell you they have urinary urgency and frequency and they're not really quite sure what to do about it and you don't really know how to address the pelvic floor, you can just address the hip and you can look at their external rotation strength. You can look at their abduction strength and prescribe some exercises to help them with this and then go home and Google pelvic floor training. (laughs) So I think when we're in scenarios where um, I I know I I used to find myself in this position all the time and this was because I didn't have my, uh, I guess, system of, I want to say like client journey planned out very well. And 
you get someone book in for their initial consult. You have no idea what they're coming in for. They turn up and you're like, man, I hope that they don't have some random weird condition that I have no idea what it is. And I'm going to have to be like fumbling my way through the initial to give them something to walk away with so I can go home and Google it later. And um, obviously I've changed the way I deliver it. So I see a lot of people and talk to them before they even see me for their initials. So I can be very prepared. Um, And if you don't do that now, I would highly suggest doing something like this because it really does help. But I think when they've turned up and you have nothing, no idea about what you're doing, we know that the hip and the pelvis plays, especially the positioning and stability of it, mobility around the hip plays such a crucial role in nearly all pelvic floor issues and urinary symptoms. So addressing this can be really helpful in the interim of like figuring out what to do with them for the rest of, I guess, the rehab or maybe even referring them to someone else if you don't know what you're doing. So yeah, super confidence boosting when you can actually give someone something to do and you know it's going to (laughs) help. So I know there's a couple of you probably thinking like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not the only one that feels like that. And if you're not feeling like this, then you've been working for a really long time and you probably know what you're doing. So (laughs) Good. But I know a lot of you are new grads or you're like early on in your career and these things still pop up. And they sometimes still pop up for people like me too. So don't worry. Anyway, so there you have it. That is today's research paper. We've got, you know, uh, hip, the role of the hip and strength, especially in external rotation and abduction can really help women well. Hang on. Let me rephrase that. We know that they have weakness in these muscles. So I am extrapolating and assuming from this research paper um, that if we were to strengthen these muscle groups with corrective programming and then addressing obviously the pelvic floor side, I would probably look at it more from like an integration perspective and like motor control rather than like strength and endurance. Um, but we can actually like potentially help these clients. So I know I'm like, you shouldn't take the research and not have it backed up by everything, but I feel like that's something that's like super relevant, right? Um, So strengthen those muscle groups and they could potentially help your clients. So there you have it. That is a little bit of research around this. I also would like to have a shout out here to um, Kiara from Seed Exercise Physiology, who actually sent me this research paper a while ago. And she sent it to me because she's like, I feel like you could share this with your um, research spotlight because I found this really interesting and maybe other people will tell you. So I had actually come across this previously and hadn't read it yet. And then when she sent it to me, I was like, I better read this and um, get amongst it. And then I thought, you know what? She's right. I'm going to share it. So shout out to her. Thank you very much. If you haven't actually, um, if you don't follow her, head on over to her uh, Instagram profile, Seed Exercise Physiology. She shares a lot of women's health stuff too. Um, And yeah, thanks, Kiara, if you're listening. Anyway, that's it for today. So if you wanted to join the Research Spotlight emails, there's a link in the uh, description notes or show notes for this episode. Um, Stay tuned. Be following along on my socials. I've got a lot of things planned for the future of the education space. If you have anything that you would like to listen to or learn or um, if you have any papers that you think are really cool and you would like to share them with me too, send them on over and I will um, add them to the list of things to do. Otherwise, thanks again for being here all the way to the end. I really appreciate your support and have a fabulous day from wherever you are and I will see you in the next one. Bye.